Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 28th. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Paige Winfield-Cunningham at the Washington Post. Hi, Julie. And making her debut as a What the Health panelist, we are pleased to welcome Jen Haberkorn of the LA Times. Hi, Julie. Uh, fun fact, Jen was on the all-female conference panel I was part of when I got the idea for the podcast a couple of years ago. For that matter, I think Margot and Paige were there, too, that day. Uh, after the news today, we will have our latest Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Julie Appleby. It's about a really expensive cat bite. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, a very busy news week, and that's without the Michael Cohen hearings and the summit with North Korea. On Wednesday, we got the official unveiling of the leading house Medicare for All bill introduced by Washington State Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, along with about 100 or so co-sponsors. And before we get into our discussion, for those of you who missed it, two weeks ago, we did an entire episode explaining the various permutations of Medicare for All and what things mean. Uh, so feel free to go back and find that if you missed it. So, Margot, explain to us what's, what's in this bill and what's different from bills like this we've seen before. Yeah, so I have developed this way of thinking about Medicare for all bills, which maybe is helpful, which is, first of all, I think about what is meant by Medicare, and then I think about what is meant by for all. So I think the Jayapal bill is very strong on the for all part. Basically, everyone who is a resident of the United States, including undocumented people, would be able to get government insurance. That insurance would be super comprehensive. It would include all the benefits that Medicare currently covers and also a bunch of other ones, including dental care, eye care, audiology, and importantly, long-term care for people who, you know, nursing home type patients, but also supports habilitative and rehabilitative services for people with disabilities. And they sort of set the eligibility threshold for those kinds of services much lower than public programs are now. So lots of people would qualify for them. And lots of people with the aging baby boomer population, of which I am one, will need long-term care and have no idea that Medicare doesn't cover it now. <laughs> Yes. So Medicaid tends to cover long-term care uh, for the most part. Uh, this would transfer all of that into the Medicare program. Uh, similar to the Bernie Sanders Medicare for All proposal, no one would really have to pay any money to go to the doctor and hospital. There would be no co-payments, no deductibles. Everything would be free at the point of service. Obviously, it would have to be financed with taxes or uh, some other form I, of money. Except for prescription drugs, though, right? I think both plans would require co-payments. I did not drugs. in this in this proposal. I did not actually see any cost sharing for. I may have missed it, but I'm, I think that uh, unlike Sanders, this one is uh, free for everything. Oh, okay. So everything free for everybody. Uh, okay, so now let's get to the Medicare part. So those things I just said, different benefits, different cost sharing, that is different than Medicare now. Medicare now does require uh, people who use Medicare to pay cost sharing, uh, and it doesn't include all of those extra benefits. And there are premiums for Part B. There's also premiums for Part B and Part D. And for D. Part D, the drug, yeah, the drug benefit. Um, but it also changes in a fundamental and kind of interesting way the way that Medicare pays for things. So right now... 
I'm oversimplifying, but right now Medicare basically pays for things on a kind of piecework basis. If you go to the hospital and you have a hip replacement, uh, Medicare pays the hospital uh, amount for hip replacement. And then if you go to a rehab facility afterwards, they pay the rehab facility some amount for that. And, you know, if you have complications and you stay in the hospital and you're in the ICU for so many days, they like might pay extra for that. And the hospital makes its money by doing so many hip replacements for so many patients and they kind of get, you know, a payment for each thing. What the Jayapal bill contemplates is instead of those kind of individual payments for individual services, that healthcare institutions, so this would include hospitals, nursing homes, and also dialysis centers and other places like that, would basically just get a lump sum payment every year. Be like, here's your budget. Take care of people with this money. And there are a lot of factors that they would use to decide what those amounts are, and they would be kind of renegotiated and adjusted every year. But it's sort of a fundamentally different way of paying for health care. It's basically saying instead of Medicare kind of turning all the little knobs to try to figure out how to do cost control by figuring out what are the services that we're going to pay for and what are the amounts that we're going to pay for them, it's basically saying to the hospital, like, here, like, you figure out how to save money. Well, that was what the Clinton plan wanted to do many, many years ago, the Bill Clinton plan. And it's not, yeah, this is not a brand new idea. This is uh, sort of how Canadian hospitals operate. Uh, the state of Maryland is experimenting with something similar to this. It's not exactly like this, but, you know, they're trying it. It seems like it's going pretty well. But there are some other features, too, that change the way that things are paid. So they want to eliminate all sorts of incentives for certain kinds of care. So any kind of pay for performance bonuses, any kind of like extra payments that doctors and hospitals get for delivering care in a particular way, they want to get rid of that. They want everything in this global payment. And they also want to make it harder for hospitals to use the money that they make to do certain things. So they're not allowed to use any money that they get uh, for capital expenditures in their hospital, for uh, political activity, for anti-labor activity, uh, and for marketing. So those are all things that hospitals would be forbidden from doing uh, with their money. There would be a how, separate how, account. Uh, oh, so you say, how, how would – I mean, I, I get the – to hospitals do need capital budgets. Yeah, so there would be like a separate account and they would have to like separately negotiate with the government and say, you know, we really need a new MRI machine. Our MRI machines kind of run down. Like, please, please. Oh, back to certificates of need. Yeah, it's I mean or like we need to renovate our wing or we want to upgrade from double occupancy rooms to single occupancy rooms. All of those kinds of capital expenditures would come out of a special account and there would be like someone in Medicare whose job it is to decide like which hospital gets it and which doesn't. And you know, Jayapal's staff say that's a good way to redirect resources towards places that they think have a lot of needs and maybe don't have as much money for capital expenditure under the current system, but just a big change. Uh, and so it's really interesting. There's a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about the idea of these global budget payments, but I also think there's like a lot of risk that that could really fundamentally change the way that healthcare is delivered because it would really change the way not just that people get their insurance, but also the way that hospitals, doctors, nursing homes, and other parts of the healthcare industry are actually delivering care. Well, of course, there's a good argument to be made that we really should change the way healthcare is paid for and delivered. The two big questions are what would happen to private insurance? It looks like pretty much everything would be covered. Yeah, so this is similar to the Bernie Sanders bill. I think that the simplest way of thinking about it is that there would be no more private insurance. It says that you can, you can have private insurance for things that are not covered, but this basically covers everything you could possibly think of that someone would want to insure for. You know, there's no cost sharing and there's no benefits that are not included. So, I mean, I, I think that probably uh, Jayapal's staff would not like it if I said that this bans private insurance, but I think that's kind of a sim simpler way of thinking about it. There's not really a role for private insurance in this it's system. It's striking how much further this goes than the Bernie Sanders bill because this proposes to uh, to, to pay for long-term care, 
which would I it, I imagine that would pump the price up even more significantly than even the Bernie Sanders bill, because that's going to be a huge ongoing cost, as you mentioned, Julie. Um, but I think both of the bills would preserve the uh, VA health system yes. and the Indian Health Service. Those are sort of the two things that would be kept intact. Um, it struck me that Jayapal didn't release any proposals for how to pay for this because that was my next question. Because yeah. <laughs> even Sanders, when he proposed his bill a year and a half ago, released a, a white paper with uh, a couple ideas. I think he proposed. Um, uh, increasing some payroll taxes and some income taxes for people earning over two hundred and fifty thousand, um, but Jayapal has really stayed away from that. And I think she even made some comment I saw the other day about how you know some reporter questioned her on that, and she was like, "Well, that's not really what's important. We need to be talking about the care that we can provide to people." But um, you know. You just look at like other countries and and even states. I mean, we have the state of Vermont that tried to pass a pretty sweeping, comprehensive bill and had to back away from that because when you drill down into the cost of how to pay for it, it's really, really tricky. Although so, I've, I've said this many times, it, it would be incredibly hard for a state to do this. For I mean, California, in theory, although even California would have trouble in border areas because people, as soon as you go to another state, and in Vermont, half the people go to either New Hampshire or New York for their health care. So it would be really hard to, to sort of do the financing in a vacuum like right. that, the way that the federal government Yeah, it's sort of a different set of, of issues yeah. there, for sure. Um, but it kind of struck me also that, um, you know, there's there's really this internal division among Democrats, among progressive activists, and uh, a couple of the really big players that that would need to back this type of a bill to really get consensus to move it are are, are really staying out of it. Um, you know, groups like Protect Our Care, uh, like the AARP, uh, Center for American Progress. Well, like, the Center for American Progress is very strongly pushing a not Medicare for all bill. They, yeah. They I have mean, a Medicare for more bill. Right. I think they look at the public polling on this and they want to... Uh, just strike a more pragmatic pathway toward achieving universal coverage. And I think they just see more opportunities through expanding existing programs. Um, we already have like big coverage programs in place. And there are a lot of more incremental things that you could do uh, that we've discussed on this program, like lowering the age eligibility for Medicare, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, there's there's sort of this very like vocal crowd behind Jayapal, uh, Jayapal but um, – you know, I just think it's telling that, you know, and even like Pelosi, I reached out to her office and if, you know, she's made comments here and there, like she, you know, she's willing for there to be hearings, et cetera. But she in Although no hearings way is committing in, I believe to, the hearings are going to be in the budget committee, right. not in the, the committees that would actually have the authority to move this bill yeah, if I think they it, so desired. Yeah, I think it would signal better prospects for this legislation if we saw hearings schedule in an energy and commerce and ways and means committee. And this is actually somewhat related to the financing. So in order to figure out how you're going to pay for a bill like this, you sort of have to have an idea of how much it's going to cost. <laughs> and until this bill gets into those committees of jurisdiction and is really getting marked up and looks like it's sort of on its way, uh, we are not going to get a CBO score for this particular bill. And, and I think Democrats don't want a CBO score for the bill. <laughs> that was my question for you. What does this mean for the 2020 candidates, for all those presidential candidates? This is pretty much kind of the the, the, the leftward most of these various Medicare for all bills. I mean, I, that was the exactly. idea. This was going to set the standard. Are they going to now get pinned by saying, well, do you support this or not? 
Right. And I think um, to the point that we don't have a CBO score that we're not seeing everyone jump on it, perhaps Democrats have learned from the Green New Deal, the climate change initiative that was just announced. Mitch McConnell wants a vote in the Senate on that. He's going to put Democrats in a tough spot. You know, do they support this really progressive idea or do they? And stick it's with not even a bill. Moderate? It's just an outline. Exactly. And this at least is a bill. So you could say. It's even more of a reason for this to become a wedge issue for Democrats. Um, and now that you've you kind of have a bill that's to the left of Bernie Sanders, which, you know, a couple of years ago, that would have been pretty remarkable. And now we have something that's even further. Um, and that could be even more divisive to, to your point, Margo, like it takes away private insurance coverage. And we saw that uh, Kamala Harris got in trouble for that when she had to get into those kind of details. So. You know, I think through 2020, we're going to see Democrats kind of go through this learning process of what Medicare for all means, as I'm sure has come up um, here many times already. And, um, you know, when you get into details like, will your local hospital have to go to the government to get a new MRI machine? That just sounds like something that would not play well. Yeah, if I were a, a Republican, I would just be chomping at the bit to get a score from the CBO. Because right. if you look at so, – so Sanders' bill didn't get a score, but there were estimates from groups both on the right and uh, on the left. I think that estimated it would cost around $32 trillion, was it? Mm-hmm. And if you compare that to the cost of the Affordable Care Act, which was what? One, $1 trillion. Yeah. Remember, there was a, a big fight about one. keeping it under right. a trillion. Exactly. And so like just the, <laughs> the huge – there's a lot of space between those two numbers. And, and you even look at like the issues around financing the ACA, which Democrats were very careful to make sure it was paid for. But then the industry has spent enormous resources and time ever since trying to step back from their agreement to pay extra taxes, et cetera, to fund the whole thing. And so given all of the things we discussed about how how Jai Paul's bill would even go further than the Sanders bill, it seems reasonable to think that it would, you know, a score would potentially be more than $32 trillion. So this bill has more than 100 co-sponsors in the House. It's not quite as many as the single-payer bill uh, in the last Congress that was a little bit less to the left, but also like way more vague. You know, just not, they, the previous proposal just had not done the work that the Jayapal staff should get credit for having done, for having written a serious bill, even though it doesn't have a pay for. <laughs> you know, 100 members is a lot. When you talk it's to— It's half of what you need to pass it, less right. than half, but it is still a lot. But I think when you talk to people— in Congress who have signed on to these kinds of legislative proposals, the word aspirational comes up a lot. Um, We saw the same thing sort of last time around with the Bernie Sanders bill. And I think that a lot of what members of Congress are saying by signing on to a proposal like this is, I agree with the basic values that underlie this bill. I think that we should have universal coverage. I think that coverage should be fair. I think it should be more affordable. And I think they're like not really sweating the details yet because they know that this is not going to become law. When and if the Democrats control both houses of Congress and are trying to legislate on health care, probably the proposal is not going to look so much like the Jayapal proposal. Uh, But I think it's sort of a way for them to signal that they agree with the values that underlie it. And the purity of the bill in some ways makes it a better vehicle for that. And Jayapal um, even tweeted the other day that um, she acknowledged it was aspirational and said something like, of course, it's bold. Like, um, yeah. to your and, point, she acknowledges that. Yeah. And you've seen like a number of members, that, you know, in the Senate particularly so- co-sponsor a number of different bills. So some of the senators that are co-sponsoring the Bernie bill are also on some of the Medicare bill, Medicare 50 bills, et cetera. So I think I do think to your point, like 
you know, they're saying there's this range of ideas. Our goal is universal coverage. That's the value that we all share as Democrats. And there's a number of ways to reach that goal. And Bernie Sanders is actually sort of like the perfect poster child for this, that, you know, he's been out there at the vanguard for a really long time saying we need a Canadian style single payer system in the United States. But as a congressman, like he worked on the Affordable Care Act. He has been in the trenches on some of these bills to try to shore it up, to prevent its erosion. You know, he, he gave, was, he's worked really hard to get more money for community health centers. Yeah. He he was uh, the chairman of the budget committee during the repeal and replace who was like fighting for these little, uh, you know, little ways of kind of undermining the bill. You know, so I think Sanders is a good example of someone who I think is a real idealist about this issue. But I don't think it's appropriate to say just because a particular Democratic legislator wants to go all the way to this kind of pie in the sky that they are not also interested in doing more kind of half a loaf incremental kinds of things along the way if they think that they're getting them towards that goal. That's not true for everyone. I think there are some people who don't want to compromise. But I think when you think about 107 co-sponsors on this bill, there probably are quite a few of them that would be enthusiastic about doing something a little bit smaller that moves in this direction. And I think that would play out, I'm sorry, um, if the House tries to do something on ACA fixes this year, something that's uh, bipartisan, actually has a chance. I think you'd see some of those progressives say, yeah, it's great to fix the ACA, but we need a Medicare for all vote. And then Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, is going to have to decide, do I force my moderates to you know, take that tough vote on Medicare for all when we know it's not going to pass? Um, and Democrats have gotten in trouble with doing that kind of stuff in the past. It's cost them politically. But then you're going to see like, are, how flexible are those progressives? How flexible are the moderates? Um, and that's probably going to be a tough call for Pelosi. And in the meantime, they're trying to, you know, gin up support on the campaign trail for the, the all the, the 2020 primary. You know, remember, primary voters are just like primary voters. Republican primary voters are more conservative than the electorate. Democratic primary voters are more liberal than the electorate. All right. We're going to leave this because we're going to talk about this ad nauseum, I'm sure. Um, but also this week, we saw the much anticipated hearing of the Senate Finance Committee with the CEOs of seven of the largest drug companies. There was no giant gotcha moment the way there was back in 1994 when the tobacco CEOs testified that nicotine was not addictive. Um, So what did we learn? Paige, you wrote a smart story about this. Well, you know, there was so much anticipation in the run-up to this hearing when we knew that, I mean, for the first time in any time I can remember, we were actually having seven executives from pharmaceutical companies come and sit before senators. Um, And a lot of these companies have uh, medicines that have been around for a long time and have jacked up the prices by, you know, 50, 100, 200 percent in recent years. Yeah, if you watch nothing else, just go watch Ron Wyden's opening statement where he sort of went down the line he of did. each company and sort of with a... He did. and But I think like, I think a lot of people came away from the hearing feeling like it was a little bit of a missed opportunity because while Wyden did name some of these medicines, this would really have been a chance for senators to like, force these CEOs to actually answer for the first time, why are you jacking up the price of insulin? Like, you cannot make this argument about research and development and all of the risk that you take to develop these new drugs, because guess what? These insulins have been around for a long time. So why are the prices going up? But you didn't really see a lot of senators drilled down into that. I mean, so um, there were a lot of, like, general questions uh, directed at them about, you know, I guess how far would, you know, would they be willing to lower list prices? You know, there was that proposal from the Trump administration in January to ban the rebate that are paid to the pharmacy middlemen uh, benefit managers. And of course, 
that's something that the drug makers are really, really, really excited about. But when they were asked, uh, well, if this went into place, would you also agree to lower your list prices? They sort of hemmed and hawed, and, and some of them indicated they might be willing to do so, but they also stressed that you need to ban the rebates across the board in private plans as well. Right, not just for um, Medicare. Right, not just for Medicare. And, um, you know, and I think they really tried to make the point that, you know, they're only they're they're one part of the drug pipeline. And there are all of these players that kind of influence the ultimate price that is paid and that they are not the ones that should be held solely responsible or or accountable. Um, You know, but but a couple of times, a few senators pushed back and said, well, you know, you are the ones that do ultimately at the end of the day set the list prices. And that's Um, what everything else is based on. Exactly. Right. And so, um, you know, so so like there were I mean, there were a few like specific specific things. One thing that struck me was um, they all expressed support for the CREATES Act, which is a bipartisan bill um, which seems to stand a pretty good chance of getting advanced in Congress this year. Although it's been kicking around for, what, three Congresses now? (laughs) Yeah, it has. And there was an effort to pass it late last year, and that kind of fell through. Um, But basically, this bill would ban this practice where uh, brand name drug makers basically block access to samples of their medications to generic developers as sort of a way of preventing competition from entering the marketplace. Um, and pharma had kind of pushed back against it, but it was kind of interesting to me that all of the drug makers said when asked specifically, would you support Creates? They said yes. Um, but of course, when there was a follow-up question of "Do has your company ever engaged in this practice of blocking these medications, all of them denied it, even though in fact a couple of them have have engaged in this practice. Yes, and the FDA has 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 the a FDA list. The FDA has said that exactly. Um, you know, but um, so so I think I think what will be interesting or what we should watch is kind of like the follow up and what comes out of this. I mean, we've got a couple more hearings on drug prices. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to watch to see if the Creates Act. Uh, if anything happens there, uh, there's another bill that Grassley has pushed, uh, Senate Finance Chairman uh, Chuck Grassley, called Pay for Delay. Um, so there's some incremental things um, that could happen. But I feel like the hearing could have packed a lot more punch, probably, in terms of just getting these CEOs to answer specifically to some of these these medications that have seen these big price hikes that are really concerning a lot of patients. I left with the impression that major prescription drug reform is not going to happen. I mean, just, you know, there's there's a lot. Well, there's a lot going in their direction, right? You have all these bad headlines, insulin prices, EpiPen. People know about it. Um, Lawmakers say that they hear about it in their town hall meetings. And Republicans are concerned about it. I mean, it's bipartisan. Right. There's some move on the Republican side. But, like, you don't get that big tobacco moment if you don't ask the tough questions, right? And they had the opportunity. They were all there. You know, they were holding their hand up. And, you know, you you as a lawmaker need to ask the questions that lead to that stark headline of these, you know, drug companies are doing dishonest things. And they that's lacked how a you lot get of that follow momentum. up. Yeah, right. they lacked a lot of I mean, because at the beginning of the, the hearing, both Wyden and Grassley warned the CEOs. They're like, we realize that you're not the only ones that are part of this system, but you are in front of us today and we are asking you questions and we don't want to see any blame shifting. But you saw that blame shifting going on and the senators kind of like didn't ask a lot of follow-ups. You saw the the drug companies continue to blame the insurers and blame insurers for requiring large cost sharing, et cetera. And the average person 
didn't, I doubt they saw any of those headlines. There's so much going on in the world. I mean, let alone this week that did the drug hearing breakthrough. No. So there's no public momentum to do major legislation that for some Republicans would be difficult. I got the feeling from watching the hearing that it felt like more of a negotiation um, by the senators with the with the drug CEOs. Like, well, if we did that, would it be okay? Or, you know, or I think we're going to we might do this. You know, is is, is that something that you would have a problem with? It just it felt more like it it felt more transactional than challenging. Um, I still think the kind of symbolism of this is interesting and feels noteworthy to me. Like the fact that I think all three of you compared this to the tobacco executive hearing. I, I was at the tobacco executive. I don't think that <laughs> so we So was have... Ron Wyden. He was in house then. <laughs> he mentioned that. Yeah. I don't think we've traditionally thought about the drug companies as being in the same category of, as the tobacco companies. And in defense of the drug companies, I think there's a reason why we don't talk about them in the same breath very often, because these are companies that are making innovative products that extend human life, right? As opposed to tobacco companies that were making a sort of addictive uh, product that doesn't have a lot of benefits and that was harmful to health and caused a lot of people to die. So uh, just the fact that like the photo app looks like the tobacco hearing, people are talking about it being like the tobacco executives. There was like this expectation there was going to be some big gotcha. I'm not like totally surprised that there wasn't, but I, I think it does to me signal a little bit of a shift in thinking about pharma, not as this industry that brings us all of these like wonderful goodies that improve our lives, but as kind of villains who have to be held to account by Congress. That just I know that that's a kind of subtle thing, but the fact that you know Chuck Grassley and you know the Republican leadership is comfortable putting pharma in that position. Uh, and, and the fact that they basically agreed to to uh, to legislation that they have uh, fought in the past. This is not super important legislation. is going to make a very big difference. It's kind of little marginal technical thing. But, you know, I think that they're a little bit on their heels. I think the analogy to the tobacco companies is more political, right? You get the big headline that builds public momentum. So you have to do something. Con- members of Congress want to prove that they held the big bad company to account. So so I, f- I feel like, yeah, we can't compare the tobacco companies to the drug companies in the exact same way, but it's the kind of hearing that compels that Republican who may have voted against uh, this bill in the past. And to I think do it's it. also we're seeing a little bit of a shift. I mean, a lot of it's coming from the public, but with tobacco, I mean, for years and years and years, everybody knew that tobacco was bad and nobody, Congress could never do anything about it ever, ever, ever. They were just, the, the tobacco industry was just way too powerful. Um, and yet, and then when it shifted, it shifted. And I think that that is sort of comparable. You know, the drug industry has had an enormous amount of political clout um, over the past, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, in fact, there, there's, uh, we get to it. My, we'll talk about my colleague's story from drug price hearing from 1959. So this is not a new issue at all. But I think, yeah, the fact that they all came up suggested that they are worried enough that that they feel like they need to do this. But one thing I think we still don't have a great sense of, and we didn't really get during the hearing, is where Republicans stand on this uh, promise by the administration to link some Medicare prices to this international index. Um, You know, I've repeatedly asked Grassley about this over the the last month or so, and he's definitely dodging on it. And it didn't really come up much during the hearing. Senator uh, Bill Cassidy 
did refer to it. But um, and, and like in his comments, it seemed like he was kind of open to it, which would be notable because he's pretty conservative. Um, but he's also a doctor. But right. Exactly. So um, so I think that that's something that I'm just curious about. And I think Republicans themselves are still trying to figure out how close are they willing to get to that idea of the government engaging in a little bit more what they would term price setting um, given that this has been proposed by a Republican administration. All right. Well, also more to come on this issue. Uh, one more. Uh, just after we taped last week, we got the final version of the Trump administration's rules for Title X, the federal family planning program. As expected, the new rules would basically make it impossible for Planned Parenthood, which serves about 40 percent of the four million people who get services from the program, to continue to participate. Um, Jen, what would these rules do again? Remind us. So Title X, the uh, nation's family planning program, the administration has made no secret that they um, believe uh, Planned Parenthood should not get these dollars. Um, These dollars already require um, a a firm separation from abortion services. So someone like a Planned Parenthood can do Title X services, but they need to keep it separate from abortion. Um, Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers say they do that um, already. The conservative argument is that, you know, it's the same pair of Pot pants, of money, yeah. uh, different pockets, and that you're uh, enabling someone like Planned Parenthood to stay afloat by providing uh, Title X funding. Um, so the administration said that you have to have an even more firm wall between the two. You can't have any financial relationship or physical relationship. Um, so really, you can't do the same services in the same building, which would eliminate Planned Parenthood from Title X programs. Although not all, not all Planned Parenthoods do abortion, but it would eliminate the ones the vast who do majority. Um, so I this is the financial separation that's really the bigger problem for Planned Parenthood. Right. Financial and physical, which is really insurmountable. Um, Planned Parenthood has said that that's totally unworkable for them. Um, so this is going to go through the courts, you know, check back in two or three years when we have another Supreme Court case about uh, something related to abortion. Um, you know, we don't know for sure that's going to go to the Supreme Court, but that seems where this is going to be decided. Ultimately. Well, there's certainly an awful lot of lawsuits that are lining up. Well, I learned something this week that I didn't know before because I wrote a story about the 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 pending the uh, the impending legal fight, which is that I assumed you know this similar rules were issued in the Reagan administration and they went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld them. And I thought. How how are you going to fight this? The Supreme Court has already upheld this. Well, it turns out that in the intervening 20-some years, uh, 28 years, I guess, uh, the Democrats and Republicans actually put language in the spending bill, the annual spending bill for the Department of Health and Human Services for Title X that says that they must provide non-directive counseling for women with unintended pregnancies, that those used to be the the regulations that are now being overturned, but that's in law. And so part of this regulation says that you you may you can counsel on abortion, but you can't refer for abortion. And, and clearly abortion is uh, discouraged under these regulations, which violates what's in the Appropriate, what the, the congressional intent, um, but also perhaps even more important in the Affordable Care Act that the Republicans didn't manage to repeal. There is a long pro- list of provisions of things that the secretary cannot do, including dictating how uh, providers talk to patients about what. So there are actually some legal uh, uh some things that are in law now that were not in law in 1991 when the Supreme Court last looked at this. Now, this is a way more conservative Supreme Court than was even there in 1991. Uh, I talked to one legal scholar who said, yes, they could they could distinguish those arguments away. I like that phrase. Um, so you don't know what's going to happen, but it's definitely going to be a, a different fight than I think it was. 
I, I just wanted to note some of the possible consequences on the ground if this happened. I think Jen's right that, you know, we're going to be in court for a while. This isn't going to happen immediately. But uh, Texas actually is a pretty good case study for this. So they decided that they no longer wanted Title X money to go to Planned Parenthood or other abortion providers in their state. And what it meant is they basically got no more federal money and had to run the program just using state money. And in Texas, we now know in the years afterward, there's been public research on this, that women got fewer services, they got less contraceptive counseling, and the number of Medicaid births increased. So, yeah, I mean, this is all tied up in abortion politics. And obviously, this has to do largely with Planned Parenthood, which is a big abortion provider. But I think it's important to remember that Title X services are not abortion. These are generally contraceptive and basic women's health services. And if you take away the provider that is providing 40% of these services nationwide, it means that a lot of low-income women are going to have more difficulty finding providers who can give them those services. And so they may not get contraception. They may end up with more unintended pregnancies. Yeah, the Republican and talking point is that um, community health centers and other clinics can can take over and provide these services. But community health centers have, have said that, and community health centers do provide contraceptive services, um, but they say they are all, they, they cannot take um, take on the amount of people that would be, would end up coming to them. And also they are not located in a, in a lot of places. Planned Parenthood or, or other Title X providers are the only clinics for, you know, hundreds of miles around. I think over the long term, it seems plausible to me that the Republican argument is right, that if these dollars are available and there is no one there uh, offering the services, that there may be new providers that will kind of spring up in the places where Planned Parenthood goes away. But in the short to medium term, it's not instant. You can't just redirect all of those patients to existing providers who accept Title X funds. And so it means that there are a lot of women who are going to be sort of out of luck. And pregnancy happens really fast. So having them be out of luck for a couple of years actually means a lot of women who may end up with pregnancies that they would have preferred not to have. And actually, the Congressional Budget Office, when they were estimating what it would mean to um, kick Planned Parenthood out of the Medicaid program, said exactly that, that they estimated that there would be more births and more births of, of children who would then be supported by Medicaid and would actually cost money. Although and given given where we are in the Trump administration, I mean, there's potentially fewer than less than two years left. So because they're trying to do this through policymaking, this is also feasibly something that could be reversed under a Democratic administration. Yes, which is what happened in 1991, actually. It took, they, they, even after the Supreme Court ruled, there was yet another uh, uh, spate of lawsuits because they tried to limit it to doctors instead of just and nurse practitioners and nurses and social workers all complained. And, and then they got an injunction. And eventually, I think it was in effect for like 32 days. Um, and then Bill Clinton came into office right. and made the whole thing go away. One more just little point is uh, even if this – rule went into effect, Planned Parenthood would still continue to get quite a lot of federal money. So most of Planned right, Parenthood because they didn't get defunded from Medicaid. Funding mm-hmm. comes through Medicaid. So these are women who are already enrolled in the Medicaid program. If they go to Planned Parenthood for these kinds of services, for basic women's health services, for contraceptive counseling and other things, cancer screenings, other services that are not abortion that Planned Parenthood provides, Medicaid pays Planned Parenthood for those services. So this is a financial hit to Planned Parenthood if this goes into effect. But it is not the bulk of their funding. It is not even the bulk of their federal funding. Well, in several conservative states, I believe, have tried to block Planned Parenthood from the Medicaid reimbursements. And I think the courts have blocked them in just about every state. So yeah, it seems pretty clear. There's at this a point. requirement in federal law that um, uh, that 
beneficiaries be able to go to to basically the any provider of their choice. Yeah, to any right. willing provider. And that's what Congress was trying to change uh, in 2017 and failed because <laughs> they didn't have the votes. But that's another issue that is very likely to end up at the Supreme Court. Louisiana is doing that right now and engaged in a back and forth on a injunction. We'll see. Okay, that is the news for this week. Now we will play our Bill of the Month interview. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my colleague, Julie Appleby, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. So our patient this month falls into the category of no good deed goes unpunished, right? Tell us who she is, where she's from, and what happened that landed her in the emergency room. That's right. Her name is Jeanette Parker, and she is a wildlife biologist. And she was working one day. She was looking along the side of a road near Everglades National Park, and she saw this little cat, and it looked really hungry and skinny. And she thought, well, I have some food in the car. I think I'll stop and give this cat some food because she knows that a lot of times people dump their animals out there. So she went to feed the cat, and as she was feeding it, the cat bit her, and it broke the skin, and she was bleeding. So she did which was the right thing to do. She went and got some medical treatment for it. She got a rabies vaccine. She got something called immune globulin. She got it all cleaned off. She didn't even see a doctor. She saw a physician's assistant at the hospital, and she went home. And then the bill came. (laughs) And how much was it? The total bill was more than $48,000. But here's what was the most surprising thing about this bill. That was surprising in and of itself. But $46,000 of that was for the one treatment, the one injection of immune globulin. And that's when, explain, when somebody gets potentially exposed to rabies, there are a, a number of uh, of things that, that they do to prevent that person from getting that's rabies. That's right. A number of things happen. You get a vaccine, actually you get a series of vaccines. And she did get a vaccine shot, and that was about $1,000. You also get something called immune globulin, which is a complex drug. It's made out of plasma of people who are already vaccinated against rabies. And it's given to you to kind of kickstart your immune system while the rabies vaccine starts to work. And she did get one injection of that at this hospital, which was the closest hospital to her home. And for which they charged $46,000. $46,000. How on earth is a rabies shot so expensive? Is that the normal price? That is not seeming the normal price. The CDC shows that rabies treatment might cost more than $3,000. But that would be total for the vaccine and the It's not clear from their website. So what I did, I I talked to some folks about what would be the wholesale acquisition cost of this drug. And for the amount that she got, it would have been around a little over $4,000. Okay, so $4,000 and some change. And presumably wholesale costs. And presumably the hospital, the hospital paid more up. than that. And maybe they had to buy some and, and didn't use it and it has a shelf life and they had to. So that said, what she was charged, though, 46000 is just really well, well above that amount. So what eventually happened? Was her insurance company any help in this? Well, her insurer paid the bill. Her insurer did get a discount instead of paying $46,000 for that one Injection, it paid $33,423. So, Which was still kind of insanely that's, high. <laughs> that's a lot of money. Um, she went in in September, and sometime later in October, the hospital revamped what is called a charge master. And this is their list of all their goods and services and what they charge for it. And they, they can set these prices. And it lowered the price of this immune globulin by 79%. That was after she had this um, bill. So if she had 
if she'd come in under a month right later. a month later it, her, her the the amount of that one injection would have been closer to ten thousand dollars instead of the forty six thousand so the hospital did lower it they would not tell me specifically why they lowered it they say they update their charge masters regularly which most hospitals do but interestingly this was just a couple of months before a new rule went into effect that requires hospitals to publicly post their charge masters online so everybody can see what they're charging for various things. Not, not that that had, not that one had anything necessarily to do with the other. Well, we don't know. So in the end, she actually she had to pay what was it, ten percent of the the bill? She had insurance where she had to pay a little bit of her deductible and ten percent of the bill, and the total came to forty one hundred dollars. And she eventually had to pay that. She right? did pay that. <laughs> so, so what should you do if you get bitten by a non-domesticated animal? Um, clearly, going without medical care is a pretty dangerous option. Right. Really, you do need to go and seek medical attention if it breaks the skin. And she did that. And at that time, where she was bit was in Miami-Dade County in Florida. And they actually had some rabies alerts out for cats and raccoons and things like that. So it was very important for her to get checked out. Some places have public health departments. You might want to call them first. She did that. But the public health department was closed. It was a Saturday. So she did the appropriate thing by going to seek medical care at the hospital. Just be prepared to pay for it. That's right. (laughs) Perhaps a lot. And the other thing that she did that was interesting, she got an itemized bill because she was curious about this, too. That seemed like a lot. So she did get an itemized bill from the hospital, which is an important thing to do if you have a question about a bill. She even stopped by the hospital to ask if the amount was correct, and they assured her that it was. And that is indeed what they were charging at that time for this treatment. I think it shows that drug prices themselves are one piece of the puzzle, but hospitals can also decide what they're going to charge for a particular good or service. And you need to be aware. Maybe don't stop and feed cats by the side of the road. And yeah, or be if careful. Do, <laughs> if you do, be careful. Julie Appleby, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Margot, you have two. Why don't you go first this week? Yeah, so it's one story, really, but there are are two articles on this subject that I think could be interesting. Uh, One is a really lovely story in the Washington Post from Lena Sun called Anti-Vaxxers Face Backlash as Measles Cases Surge. And there is a measles outbreak in the Pacific Northwest right now. Uh, one of several recent measles outbreaks that uh, seems to be fueled by a large number of children in certain communities who have not been vaccinated with the MMR vaccine. What her story reports is that in response to this outbreak, a lot of states that had exemptions that made it sort of easy for parents to opt out of vaccinations if they had a sort of moral objection to them or other kinds of sort of non-religious. They call them philosophical objections. Philosophical, religious. They have, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch well, no, of No, I think different, it's philosophical versus religious. There's a bunch of different categories of exemptions. One of them is medical. So none of these states are taking on medical. If your kid has a health problem that would prevent them from getting a vaccine, then they're not going to force you to get it. But they're sort of a bunch of states now are trying to tighten up those other exemptions in response to this outbreak. And the reason I wanted to mention a second piece is that there was an article uh, in The Upshot, actually, by Emily Oster and Jeffrey Cox a couple of years ago said, after debacle, how California became a model on measles. And this was California passed one of these laws where they tightened up the exemptions. And what they found is that the vaccination rate went up tremendously. We talk a lot about how hard it is to convince people who are opposed to vaccination to change their minds about it. But this seems like an area where 
uh, public policy really can have a much bigger effect than persuasion. If you just make it harder for them to get out of doing it, uh, more of them are going to acquiesce. And so if we think that there's a big public health benefit and that these philosophical objections are not a good enough reason uh, to increase the public health risk of measles infection, which is a very uh, contagious disease, then these laws are likely to have a big effect in those states. Paige. Yeah. So my story is a Kaiser Health News story. Uh, called Cancer's Complications, Confusing Bills, Maddening Errors, and Endless Phone Calls by Anna Gorman. And I think this is a really great story because it's kind of in that category of of reporting – just chronicling the burden that patients face. So, you know, you're dealing with something like cancer, obviously huge physical ramifications there. But what but but what what you're also dealing with is sort of like the mental anguish of trying to deal with your health insurer and trying to just like understand what you're paying, how much you're going to have to pay dealing with errors. So Anna talked to Carol Marley, who's a nurse who lives in Texas, and she has pancreatic cancer and just kind of like uh, got the story and the rundown from this nurse as to what it's been like um, dealing with the bills. And, you know, she provided a number of examples that were just really frustrating. In one case, there was an $18,000 chemo bill that was submitted to the insurer with missing information, and then it was denied because it arrived too late. And so, you know, this patient is trying to recover from all of these treatments, but also having to spend a lot of time on the phone to just make sure that, um, you know, that, that charges are correct and having to spend, of course, down a lot of her own savings as well to cover the cost. So just a really, like, interesting story I think a lot of people who have dealt with the healthcare system might really resonate with. Anna did a radio version of this story too, which is also really heartbreaking. Jen. Okay, mine is uh, build your own Medicare for all plan. Beware, there are tough choices in the New York Times and uh, by Austin Fracht and Aaron Carroll. Um, I thought this was a really great um, uh, visual depiction of all the things you have to go through when someone says they want Medicare for all, um, all the decisions that they do ultimately have to make. And uh, um, as we were saying earlier, you know, my quibble is that a lot of these are sure, but, or Yeah, there, it's maybe. a whole series. You can go through and answer <laughs> yes or no questions. But I went through and none of my answers to any of the questions were yes or no. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, as we were discussing earlier, the big question is how I mean, you pay for it. they did warn you that there are tough choices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we know too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I thought it was a good intro or even, you know, 101 or 102 level course in everything that goes into just the short phrase, Medicare for All and how you need to think about it. Well, mine is from my cage and colleague and cubicle mate, Jay Hancock. It's called Talk About Deja Vu. Senator set to reenact drug price hearing of 60 years ago. Um, so Jay actually went down to the National Archives to read the hard copy transcripts of a set of hearings on the high price of prescription drugs back in 1959. There was no Medicare or Medicaid at that point. So the hearings were actually before the Antitrust Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, I knew about Senator Estes Kefauver because his work of eventually led to the requirement that drugs be shown to be both safe and effective before they could be approved by the FDA. What I didn't know is that he was mostly looking at drug prices. And how familiar does this sound from his opening statement? Quote, while this country has the best drugs in the world, it would appear from the great number of letters which the subcommittee has received that many of our citizens are experiencing difficulty in being able to purchase them. So I guess some things have not changed that I'd much. hate to know what those prices were, though, yeah. in 1959. <laughs> 
good point. <laughs> All right. That is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At PW underscore Cunningham. At Jen Hab. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>